my biggest advice for anyone that wanted to come to Barcelona to set up a business is to build up a community here before you start paying professionals to mm -hmm. help you and mm -hmm. really getting advice and recommendations from people that have already done it and potentially made those mistakes that you do not need to make. That's great advice. And it's clear <laughs> that you have you know, battle wounds to show. Yes. <laughs> a lot, yes. Yeah. So I'm very firm on that topic because it needs to be said. You're listening to Foreign Founders, where we tell stories of immigrant and international founders who are working tirelessly to shape the future. We share stories of their upbringing, culture, and background, and explore the companies and products they're building. We want to highlight these founders because these are stories that are often not told. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to Foreign Founders. Our guest today, Ray Slater Berry, is a freelancer turned founder of DSLX, a B2B SaaS content agency. As a dyslexic writer, Ray's made it the mission of the agency to empower dyslexic and minority group writers to write. Ray is a Brit living in Barcelona, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Ray. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I would love to get started with your background and who you are. Yeah, fantastic. My name is Ray. I was born in London, England, and I was based in London until I was about 14, moved out to Essex when I was 14, and then studied in Falmouth in Cornwall, which is on the other end of England, for university and was there for four years. And then after that, I think I moved back to London for six months and I said, absolutely not, no way, and fled to Barcelona and have now been here eight or nine years. That's incredible. Why did you pick Barcelona? So I had been coming to Barcelona every Easter break throughout my time at university. I was on the volleyball team and myself and the coach used to come here and we used to run a volleyball camp in Salou in another part of Spain along the coastline. So I knew I really loved Barcelona and I knew that there was a good beach volleyball scene there and there was not a good beach volleyball scene in London, especially with the weather. So I said, Ray, it's now or never. <laughs> <laughs> and never look back. No, I, I, you know, I was determined to make this work. I used to have nightmares about my first job failing or me being fired and me having to sleep on the beach and me being so adamant and so stubborn and not telling my parents that I had lost my job. So yeah. I was never going back. <laughs> and when you moved to Barcelona, did you move with job in hand? What were you doing? Yeah. So I found a company called European Bartender School and they were hiring a social media intern and they were hiring a content writing intern. And I emailed them and I called them and I LinkedIn messaged them. I did everything. And I said, I can do both, but you need to make this a full-time job and I don't want an internship. So I joined them as social and content manager. I think it was from day one. And I stepped into a really, really young marketing team. They just had a designer and two social media interns, which I was supposed to be taking over from. Yeah. And I was with that company for two and a half years. I finished as head of creative strategy and I was managing a team of around 20 to 27 employees at any one time, including an internship program wow. and managing campaigns across 
multiple languages, I think seven or eight languages and probably about 13 or 14 geolocations as well. So I got in at just the right time. The, the company was really booming and yeah. I was pushed up with it because I was the one that had been there from that early stage within the marketing team. And what did you study in college that led you to down the marketing route? So I studied English literature and creative writing for three years. And then I did a master's in professional business writing. I've always been a storyteller. I've always been a writer ever since I could pick up a pencil back in the day. And this for me felt like the best progression into it. Even though when I was studying, I had no clue what work would look like for me because social media was really just becoming a thing. There were very rarely jobs in social media. Social media manager was not a role, you know, so anything to do with that world was a bit taboo or unknown or not a proper job. And, you know, now we've got directors of social and things like that out there. So it's definitely changed. But um, those are the topics that got me into this field, I would say. Yeah. And you said when we were chatting a couple of weeks ago that, you know, writing and creative writing was something that you really enjoyed, but it was difficult for you, right? Growing up. Yeah. It was infuriating for me because I love writing. I love storytelling, but I would always get the same kind of marks on my papers of saying, Ray, silly mistakes, Ray, pay attention to your work, stop making these silly typos and stop being lazy with your writing. And I was thinking, this is infuriating because I'm putting everything into these stories. And when I read them, I think they look fine. I don't see any mistakes. So to get that feedback was really hard on me. And mm -hmm. I failed a lot, not failed. I did poorly in a lot of exams because I would always run out of time on exams, written exams. And the thing that, that the main problem was that I was dyslexic, but I, I am dyslexic, but I didn't know it back then. And I mm -hmm. only found out I was dyslexic when I came to university because I was at a creative arts university. A lot of creatives are dyslexic and mm -hmm. I was given the options to do the test. I did the test. It was three to four hours long and yeah, it was told I was dyslexic and then given all the tools and the resources and the training to be able to handle my dyslexia better and write as a dyslexic writer. But I didn't get that throughout primary and secondary school. And I think that's yeah. something I really missed out on. Yeah. I think it says a lot that you didn't quit writing even during like primary and secondary school. And I think yeah. you were saying that professor in university was really giving you the right tools. What were those right tools? for dyslexic writers. Yeah. So this was back in 2011, 2012. So I got a laptop with built-in voice to speech to text technology. It's not like what we have on our phones or anything like that. It was like a real massive system that was built into the laptop. That was the core function of the laptop. Like that is what it served to do. So I would like to think it was super advanced at the time. And it was, you know, I started dictating all of my essays rather than writing them. And I was also given, I think this was probably the best thing I was given was, well, on the technology front, a microphone as well to go with it. But the best <laughs> thing I was given was an editor and a dyslexic editor slash coach slash trainer. And I had access to this woman once a week throughout, I think, second half of my first year, second year, third year, and fourth year. Mm -hmm. And I was coached on how to write and, and edit my own work as a dyslexic. Mm -hmm. I did memory training, which was a huge thing because my short-term memory was diabolical. 
and I was taught and given skills on how I can process and consume information better as a dyslexic and then how I can convey what I had going on in my head better as a dyslexic because as dyslexics we're very visual people and mm -hmm. we tend to not think so linear or in words we tend to think in images mm -hmm. and visualizations so trying to convert a series of images that I have in my head into words was sometimes a complete mess. So being able to translate that onto paper was a big training session for me, but also being able to strip that down, that paragraph down into one sentence and still be able to say everything that I could see up here was a really mm -hmm. big training for me as well. So I think that editor was the best thing I could have ever gotten at university. Hmm. Access to editor, all the technology tools and the way to get those visuals in your head into the words on paper. Yeah. And I was just provided with different ways to learn. Yeah. And then when it came to me understanding coursework, so we would be given an assignment that was a written assignment, and then we have to write on that. But I would take that assignment to my editor, coach, I don't know what to call her, and she would read it out to me. And then she would read it out to me in different ways so that I could consume that information more effectively. Yeah. Because a lot of the time as a dyslexic reader, you read something and it doesn't go in and you read it again, it doesn't go in and you just can't hold onto that information just reading. So me hearing it and me hearing it said in different ways made me understand it better and then I could mm -hmm. in turn write better. Mm -hmm. Because you're almost in Barcelona for 10 years and I'm guessing you are fluent in Spanish as well. Almost. I definitely would say I'm on my way, but yeah. The more you learn, the more you realize you need to learn. This is the problem <laughs> I had. I would say I was naive year four, year five, thinking I was fluent. And then when you try to do things like, I mean, I bought my apartment last year. Buying yeah. an apartment in a language that is not your own is a really scary thing to do. When you're signing like 30, 40 page contracts and having to handle mortgage conversations and all of these big adult things in another language is really hard. Yeah, the more I learn, the more I know I, I need to learn. And so I would say I'm as fluent as I can be for the knowledge that I have right now. But yeah, let's see what the future brings and what other topics I'm going to need to be able to speak about. Yeah, I was going to ask that because how does writing manifest in if you're doing it as a dyslexic in English, your native language uh, or Spanish? Yeah, it's really weird because so we operate in English. We um, as in your company, DSLX. My company, yeah. yeah. We've done a few projects in Spanish. My team is a real mix from around the globe. Spanish as a language rings true to a lot of us. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of odd because you can spend, I spend like a whole weekend in Spanish and then you have to pull yourself back to that in English. And then I feel like sometimes my English is dulled down because I am doing a Spanish equivalent or sometimes translating the words back from Spanish and I lose words in English and I look at something around the house for example the other day I couldn't remember what a colander was called and I was like <laughs> what is that and it like my English words just sometimes go and for example I just did this big trip back to the UK and I was speaking to a friend and I said I need to terminate my my packing and I, I, I said I need to terminate my packing because I said it in English speaking it in English they said you need to terminate your packing and I said no it's from the translation of Spanish, we'll use that to say like, I need to finish, but 
it just didn't work in the English sense. So sometimes I get them confused, the the, the translation. Yeah, they're like, Ray, that's like a little bit aggressive on your yeah. packing. <laughs> it's like I need to terminate my packing. No. So I've done that a couple of times. And yeah, yeah. but I, I'm also starting to use some Spanish words in a position where we don't have an English equivalent or we don't have an English word that gives as much gusto as the Spanish word does. Yeah. So... For example, we say in Spain, you would say tengo ganas, like it's like I really want to, or you can say someone doesn't have ganas because they, they don't show the urge to, mm -hmm. but explain it the long way around in English. It doesn't feel the same as ganas, like that word just encapsulate mm -hmm. everything else in how you would explain it in a much longer way in English. So I think I'm trying to find a, a balance between the languages. Yeah. That's the beauty of a written word too. Yeah. speaking multiple languages where you can blend and play around and you know articulate it in different ways before we get into dslx i would love to ask a question of what do you think you're as a writer what are you really good at i think you've said you know a lot of different things help you unlock the uniqueness of your writing whether it's like language whether it's dyslexia whether it's you know your background what would you say is makes you an exceptional writer? Mm, I think my dyslexia makes me an exceptional writer. I think the way that my mind works in the sense that it doesn't work as linear as a lot of other minds, it enables me to bring a unique viewpoint to my writing that is a lot more visual sometimes. And I've been complimented a lot on my introductions or my ability to tell stories or convey feelings mm -hmm. because I'm able to build a real visual in the reader's head rather mm -hmm. than have the reader just read. I would like to say I can make the reader feel, which I think is a big difference between being a good writer and being a great writer is really affecting the reader rather than having a, a passive reader. And mm -hmm. I'd say that's what, that's where I excel. I think. So when you moved to Barcelona, you was working for this fast growing company, managing 20 plus people. Then why did you decide to found DSLX? What was that founding story there? Not your typical founding story. So after European Bartender School, which was the first company that I joined in Barcelona, I went through a couple of companies. Fast forward to just before DSLX, I was working at a co-working space as their content and social media manager. And I had jumped on board with a co-working space because they said, they wanted to open 25 spaces in four years across Europe. And by that point, I had had a ton of experience in travel, remote work, um, mm -hmm. this type of demographic that they were targeting. And I said, perfect. This is just a great fear. I can see myself traveling to all these places, uh, living the dream. And then COVID hit and co-working obviously was not a thing anymore. So my hours at the co-working space got cut to 70%. And I said, okay, I'm going to start freelance writing to pick up that 30% of my salary and make my ends meet at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. And then walking out of that first pandemic where we were quarantined for four months, I walked out with, I think, three or four solid clients. And I was earning more with those three or four clients than I was with my full-time salary at the co-working space. And I said, oh, why didn't I start this sooner? <laughs> um, and I just felt so much more valued by those clients than the co-working space because I had really been able to forge these fantastic relationships with my clients. Mm -hmm. And so my birthday that year, I went into full-time freelance writing 
And I did that mm-hmm. for an entire year. And clients kept coming to my inbox saying, Ray, I heard you're really busy, but do you have time for another client? And I was thinking, who's who's telling you I'm busy? Where's this information coming from? But I said, yeah, this is bigger than me. I can't cope. You know, even if if I continue to grow, if I am able to charge more, there's only so much that I'm going to be able to earn. So I said, this is something bigger than me. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. And so I started concepting ideas of an agency, how this would work, what I wanted it to be called, the brand, the team, and it, it all grew from there. And now DSLX has been going for two and two years and four months or something like that. Two years and four months. I don't know. You have Very specific. <laughs> um, teammates all around the world too, right? Yeah. My core team right now, we have three full-time employees, which one is in the UK, one is in Colombia, and one is in Serbia. Mm-hmm. Now we have a bucket, I would say, of freelancers, maybe 10 to 15 freelancers that we work with regularly, or we work with on project basis. Mm-hmm. Now these guys are everywhere. <laughs> we have people in Spain, in the UK, we have people in Nigeria, we have people in Australia, we have people in the USA, Malaysia, uh, India, Pakistan, Germany, they're all over the place. Venezuela, I don't know if I said Venezuela, but that's what I love about it because I meet people all over the world and we have such a broad scope of cultures that we work with every day, especially every time, whether I'm working with someone or just editing someone's work or reading something, I'm learning something new and I always encourage our writers to embed their cultures or their languages into their writing wherever they can. Mm -hmm. I don't want the world of content to just be in English. I think that's so limiting and so it puts blinkers on, right? And there are so many fantastic words and phrases and cultural references out there that I would love people to know about. So I try to encourage all of our writers to embed their own histories into their writing and to educate the world a little bit more and the English readers a little bit more on everything else out there and it's great to see i love it do you think that could potentially come in head to head when you're writing b2b content for b2b readers yeah our clients in b2b our clients tend to have really really strict guidelines Mm -hmm. and are really honed in on this is exactly the type of content they want to deliver this is exactly the type of person that they're delivering to and of course we have to respect that But when we have the creative freedom to add our flair, and mostly we do it with our own brand, with people Mm -hmm. that are writing for DSLX. But when we Mm -hmm. have the creative freedom to work with clients that are more open to other ideas, or maybe they're totally new to the world of content SEO and are like, Ray, you guys are the experts, you know what's best, you go and get on with it. That's when we, I think that's when we excel even more. Because that's when we're really able to add fun to our writing and freedom to our writing and culture to our writing. And I think that makes for more interesting reads. So yeah, we have to, of course, abide by client guidelines. But when those clients don't have those guidelines or, you know, turn a blind eye to them for the sake of creative freedom, I think that's when we excel most. It seems like we zip through the founding story of DSLX, but it's incredible that how much you have grown that company in like a short period of time. But as a British citizen, yeah, how was it like building a company in Barcelona? Barcelona is, in terms of culture and lifestyle and people, a great place to build a company. 
COVID aside, the co-working world in Barcelona is massive. There's a huge, huge expat community. There's so it's home to I think two unicorns. It's just booming with business opportunities, especially startups. And it's a really inspiring place to be. So in that respect, I love and did love growing this company in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin, Barcelona, as in the, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to call it, the, the, the government, I guess, or like the, the systems in place to yeah. support business owners, new business founders. It's, it's awful. It really doesn't encourage people to go out on their own. It really hmm. doesn't, the culture, the way the taxes are done and the way that the payments that you have to make in order to start a business do not encourage new businesses to thrive. I it's see. almost as though they want you to fail and they want you to stick to your steady job for 20 years, never questioning where you're going, how much you're earning or anything like that. There is no encouragement for new businesses in that respect. And that's People, regardless of being an immigrant or local, right? Regardless, regardless. Yeah. Businesses thrive here and do well here because people want to live in the city for the lifestyle. And mm -hmm. we've created our own culture is outside of what the government's saying that we should or shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Now, those actual processes are really dated. The systems online are totally flawed and filled with bugs. But you can guarantee if you couldn't get this card or couldn't get this appointment that you had to book four months in advance, they'll be on you and you'll get a fine, even though the website had crashed for three months. So yeah. it's not a great place, if I'm honest. And I have really struggled with handling systems here and handling the bureaucracy of trying to run a business here mm -hmm. it would have been a lot easier for me to just become an employee of a company that was already established here mm -hmm. um but of course i didn't do that <laughs> yeah if there's a another ray looking to build a company in barcelona what's one thing that you would suggest like you would be like i do want to build a company in barcelona yeah i think Find yourself good people and build up your community around you. Mm -hmm. There are also a lot of, I don't want to say scams, but a lot of people that are out there to hijack the efforts of people coming into the country to try and make life work. And yeah. they'll be coming as gestors, like as a, what's the word? <laughs> accountants. <laughs> they'll be coming as accountants or lawyers, I can help you do this. It's only 5,000 euros, blah, 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 blah. I can help get you an appointment uh, mm -hmm. to get your residency card. It's only 500 euros. When If you just surround yourself with good people that have already done this, yep. they can tell you the website. They can tell you what time you need to log on to get your appointment. You don't need to pay someone 500 euros to do that. Hestors, uh, people that rent out apartments, they do take advantage of newbies to the city and they massively overcharge until those newbies figure themselves out and figure out what they should actually be paying for that property or that office space or that booking that appointment. So I think my biggest advice for anyone that wanted to come to Barcelona to set up a business is to build up a community here before you start paying professionals to mm -hmm. help you and mm -hmm. really getting advice and recommendations from people that have already done it and potentially made those mistakes that you do not need to make. That's great advice. And it's clear <laughs> that you have, you know, battle wounds to show. Yes. <laughs> from that. A lot. Yes. Yeah. So I'm very firm on that topic because it needs to be said. Yeah. Appreciate it. A lot of the listeners for foreign founders are founders themselves, right? Immigrant founders to communities all around the world. 
I think at the earliest stages, when people are building their companies, they're thinking of how do I get my company's product and name out? Mm -hmm. And one of the way is what you're doing. So I would love to pivot a little bit into how founders can engage with content, with SEO, and then ultimately with, you know, companies like yours. Perfect. I'm a firm, firm believer in inbound marketing over outbound marketing. I think that the best way that you are going to build a brand is organically. I've seen so many companies in the past run themselves into the ground by throwing money at ads that provides results week on week, but doesn't provide results year on year. And you end up outbidding yourself, having to outbid yourself, and you end up losing. I've also found and seen so many companies shooting for more than what they are and running like a 50K, 100K, 150K ARR company, and, and they're just not. So be humble in where your business is at. Don't spend above your means, especially if you don't have investment. Like we and many founders just bootstrap. So I think that's a, a huge thing. But getting back to the inbound marketing, we've tried outbound marketing. Like we've tried cold email campaigns. Bearing in mind that I had a team of writers creating these emails. Writers that this is literally what they do. They write copy to convert. But Emailing cold is just such a high lift and such a numbers game that it's almost not worth it. I didn't think it was. I would rather people invest their time in inbound marketing, social media, blogs, like SEO and content. Yeah, really the content world, that is how you're going to get known. That is how people are going to share about your brand. And that's how others are going to come to you. And then it's so much easier to make a sale than trying to sell out. If someone comes in and they feel like they've already made their decision and they come to your inbox and they say, when can you start rather than what do you do? And it's just so much easier to manage. So I'm a firm believer in it. We've done great results for our clients in the past in SEO and social media. It is a quality game and it is a long game. However, done right, you set yourself up for success over the space of years rather than months and much more sustainable success than anything that you can ever do with ads. Yeah. Yeah. Once you unlock the organic route, the inbound marketing route, it is, yeah, you're the talk of the town as a company. Yeah. Everyone's so jealous. Like if the competitors don't have that and you have that, that's a significant advantage that's really hard to take away. And no matter how great products are the thing you're really buying into in most cases is the brand you're buying into brand trust you're buying into a logo and what that logo makes you feel and those experiences that that brand can run you through mm -hmm. and think about it like nike it's just sports clothes like that's where it started that's all it is but it's so much more than that as soon as I say that name. And mm. that is content marketing. That is just good marketing. And that's all they've done. And that's what people are buying into. And there are so many other brands in the B2B SaaS world, like Hotjar, like MailChimp, like Typeform, these leaders in content that just make mm -hmm. a user feel like they can trust in you. And you can have 10 people offering the same thing, but the user is going to go for the brand that they trust most over everything else price yeah. over product over features it's which one do i trust the most and that comes from good inbound marketing yeah it's everything it's like going back to what you're saying about writing can be emotional like great brands can be emotional as well yes yeah, yeah. we're actually this month i'm releasing a course called the art of storytelling for okay. freelance writers and storytelling is so 
key to selling and it's so key to evoking emotion or response from a reader that it, I'm using everything that I've learned from my fiction writing world. I write fiction, I publish fiction, putting all of that into nonfiction, like it can, storytelling is crucial in business writing and mm. great content. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to lift freelance writers more by using the art of storytelling. And I'm really excited for that course to launch and see hopefully a small change in the type of content that we're getting on our feeds. Yeah. When founders say that content takes a while, how do you respond to that? Whether that's the response to take like SEO, I think it's like index six months, you can start seeing results there. Yeah. You know, we have clients that or potential clients that have pushed back and say, hey, this is I know SEO is a long game. And then they say that and they sign up. And then by month two, they're like, but where are the results? I say, we agreed, you know, for us, normally we start seeing results in month three. Mm -hmm. But month one doesn't mean we're publishing content straight away because normally we run a technical audit. We do a competitor analysis. We have to clean up the site, the sitemaps, like mm -hmm. optimize all of their old content. And then it takes a while for us to take results. However, those clients that stick with it and that are yeah. patient see those results and are like, ah, I get it. But it's trust, you know, yeah. and that comes for our own inbound marketing efforts. We have to build trust with our clients for them to keep paying the bills, for them to keep believing in us and when they do it pays off but they have to be patient for that yeah so yeah. is that the advice for founders who want to work with companies like yours is it's i would it's say i would say audit the companies that you're looking at wisely mm -hmm. i would say because i know there are a lot of agencies out there that i don't want to throw agencies under the bus but i know that a lot of my clients that have come to me have had trauma from working with agencies in the past yeah. And come to us saying, no, we've implemented this. We do this now. These are the processes we do to work with agencies to not be in that situation again. Yeah. So audit your agencies, audit anyone that you're considering. Reach out to some of their past clients. You know, mm -hmm. agencies publish their clients all over their websites. Reach out to that head of content, that head of marketing and say, hey, what was your actual experience working with this agency? Mm -hmm. Did it work? Are you still working with them? If you're not, why not? Mm -hmm. so I would say if you're considering working with an agency, audit them. And then I would also say, remember the team that you are getting access to, because a lot of the time, prospective clients look at our rates and say, oh gosh, that's too high. I thought we were just getting a writer. Yeah. You're getting so much more than that. You're getting an SEO analyst. You're getting a backend developer to go into your website and implement a ton of stuff as well as do your site audit. You're getting yeah. a writer, an editor, an account manager, sometimes a designer, a social media manager. There's so many moving parts. We have a team on our SEO and social accounts that is probably seven or eight people, but all the clients use is one person because that's easier for them. So look at working with an agency as the same costs as you hiring those roles and then compare the prices of that and you'll find that agencies are so much more affordable. If you had to hire seven roles in-house or you hire one agency, mm -hmm. the agency just comes up like as the cheapest option, even yeah. if upfront it can be a little bit like jarring to see that price tag. Remember who you're paying for. It's not just one person. Yeah, that's a very good insight. That's the difference between an agency and a freelancer too. It's like, yeah, you get so much more with potentially with an agency with all the different skill sets and different yeah. people on board and different help. We, we had one client that we were doing 25 articles a month for and wow. Can you imagine if that client had to work with freelancers to get that lift done? You'd have to work with minimum four freelancers, maybe five. And 
they just hired one person. They hired one agency, right? So yeah. it just makes that process for you so much easier and smoother. And you're not editing four different people's work. You're getting yeah. 25 articles that are seemingly from the same person. But we have done all of that work for you behind the scenes, working yeah. with our freelancers to get you finished products first time around. So there's a huge save in onboarding and there's a huge save in just general time to get things to life working mm -hmm. with an agency. Yeah, those are really great tips. The big elephant in the room, though, is GPT, LLMs. <laughs> what are your thoughts around that, especially around the content world? Yeah, so I think that ChatGPT is not there yet at all. And this is not me saying this, like being on my high horse and being proud of a writer and, and trying to protect my job. We try to use it. Clients have tried to use it. It's just not there. The thing is ChatGPT has been built with all of the data that it already has access to. And I genuinely believe that over the last 10 years, we've been writing for bots and search engines way more than we have been writing for humans because mm -hmm. Google was not as smart as it is now. So things like ChatGPT are going off of old data are going off of old ways of writing and it's building on that and it's excelling on that. It's doubling down on that. So it's turning out articles that are just dire and it's such a shame, but it's a highlight of how poorly the world has been writing in the past and how much mm -hmm. we've forgotten to write for humans. So I think ChatGPT is changing the world, the way the world writes. And I think writers are in two situations at the moment. They can either give up or they can find ways to excel and beat mm -hmm. the bots. And mm -hmm. I think it's really going to separate those that really want it from those that thought it was a nice to nice to have. And I do genuinely believe that our content is going to be better for it as writers push themselves to figure out how they can create more unique pieces of content. So I'm excited to see the top talent push itself to be better. Yeah. Because maybe we've got a little bit complacent over the last couple of years, but now it's like, oh, hang on. There is something coming for our jobs. Okay, let's make sure we can hold on to our jobs. And I think I'm starting to see some truly artful storytelling going out there that still yeah. resonates with brands and still builds trust with brands and people. Yeah. And I also think if we're just as a species being able to create more, that means like our time is still the same. So the higher quality content and information and stories are definitely going to be consumed more. And all the long tail ones who are like really low quality, probably people will even look at it. I think it's just going to eradicate 101 content. It's going to eradicate yeah. five ways to build your podcast. It's just going to go yeah. uh, because people can get that from ChatGPT. Yeah, but absolutely. Five ways how this person built their podcast and this is how they did it, why they did it. This is their story. Yeah. That's something I want to read, yeah. you know? So I think that that is, and that's something that only humans can do because we can forge these relationships and understand people's experiences better and convey them better. Yeah. So um, I'm excited to really read experiences more than just this 101 drop that we've notoriously been getting on Google previously. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ray. Are you ready for the last couple of questions? Yes, let's do well, it. Anything that we haven't covered about BSLX, dyslexia, or content writing today that you would love to? I think I'll let you in on a little secret. DSLX is going through a big rebrand. We're really excited for it. And it's going on a rebrand because we're about to go a lot bigger with the mission. Mm -hmm. And we're about to have that mission resonate with a lot more people, not just B2B content. So we're going to have DSLX content, which is one avenue of 
the business and how it resonates with our mission. But we've got a few more pillars coming that are going to help us along the way. And we're going to start servicing the, the freelance writing community better. And we're going to get more of our mission into schools as well sooner. So I'm really excited for what next year brings for DSLX. I think I have to remind myself why I started this business in the first place mm -hmm. and my experience that I've been through and how that's resonating. And I'm going to be thrilled if we can continue to change the way the world and business is right. But if I can capture that even younger and meet future founders in schools and secondary schools and change the way they write, yeah. then even better. So yeah. I'm really excited for what's to come. Yeah. No one needs to have that experience where you felt from listening, just like first primary and secondary school being not helpful for your writing. And yeah, if you can yeah. address that earlier and earlier. Yeah. And we're going uh, to be expanding more from just dyslexics to a broader spectrum of neurodiverse people, which I think is yeah. going to be really exciting to explore. Yeah, that's really cool. What are you most optimistic about? This is what I ask every founder on my show. In terms of my business or in terms of the world, in terms of the industry? open-ended. Oh, wow. What am I most optimistic about? Honestly, I think going into the schools and servicing the neurodiverse community and really doing it justice, I would <laughs> love to be able to educate kids and parents on if a kid potentially has ADHD, mm -hmm. for example, the signs that they should be looking for, what that means, how that means that that child should and can learn better, how they can work with information. I'm really excited to be changing the world bigger and to be empowering all neurodiverse people, not just dyslexic writers, neurodiverse people to essentially be more successful at life mm -hmm. and enjoy life. So we're starting with businesses. We're starting with B2B content. Why stop there? And I'm really yeah. optimistic for these other uh, routes uh, that we're taking to empower those people. I love that answer. How can people find you? Or if they have questions, how can they reach out? Yeah, I'm big on LinkedIn. I post quite regularly on LinkedIn. So please do message me on LinkedIn. I always forget I have a Twitter, so don't reach me there. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably the best, the best option. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for being on Foreign Founders and telling us about your story on founding DSLX, your content writing, and the future of yeah, your work. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast app. One more thing. Foreign Founders is a new podcast, so please consider leaving a rating or review. That helps more people find the show. See you on the next episode.